There are two competing statements when it comes to loved ones being separated. You know these sayings. The first is, distance makes the heart grow fonder. And this is a statement that speaks to the fact that if two people love each other and they are apart, that their longing to be with each other, their craving to be with each other will be strengthened. The other saying is one I'm sure you know, which is out of sight, out of mind. And this is also true in many relationships where if a loved one is far away, indeed out of sight, out of mind. I don't want to venture to think how your relationship with your spouse is, which of these statements seem to best fit when you are away. I hope it is distance makes the heart grow fonder, but in reality, I'm sure the majority is out of sight, out of mind. In the Christian life, this is also true. When we have been separated from God, whether by circumstance or by choice, I wonder, does it make you long for Him more, or does it make you neglect Him more? Sadly, the truth, based on my assessment interacting with many of you of the Christian life, is that when it comes to our walk with God, when we are separated from Him by circumstance or choice or by sin, perhaps the saying, out of sight, out of mind, is most appropriate. Because when we don't need God, we don't think much about Him. When we need Him, we call Him, but the rest of the time, out of sight, out of mind. One of the saddest part of visiting Europe is seeing the great cathedrals. And you may wonder why it is with great sadness that I see and enter these great cathedrals of worship. For once it was full of vibrant worship, it is now only a place for sightseers to take a look. You see, what happened was that as people's lives got busy, and as their lives became better, and there were more options for pleasure they began down the road of neglecting God and the worship of God. What was once the birthplace of the Great Reformation, of which we celebrate 500 years of it this year, and what was a place where many missionary endeavors all throughout the world began in Europe, is now really a post-Christian world where it is the immigrant churches where you will find spiritual fervor because they have not yet neglected God as they have a very difficult life trying to fit in to a culturally new home. And yet the sad fact is that as these immigrant families settle in, the second and the third generation will begin to neglect God because as life becomes easier and as life becomes better, that is often the natural byproduct of what we do. But when we neglect something, it leads to destruction. As it would if you were to neglect the maintenance of your home, if you were to neglect the maintenance of the bridge or even that of your car, when those things are neglected, they fall apart. So also your spiritual life, when we neglect our walk with God, when we neglect our fellowship with Him, it leads one from starting out well to eventually finishing badly. And this is what we call the pitfall of neglect. How do we avoid the pitfall of neglect? That's what we'll take a look at this morning as we continue our sermon series entitled Kings and Kingdoms. We've been looking in this series at the various pitfalls that prevent one from finishing well. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Second Chronicles chapter 29 as we take a look at the early life of King Hezekiah. Second Chronicles chapter 29 looking at the early life of King Hezekiah. As you're turning to Second Chronicles chapter 29, I think we need to understand a bit of background. In terms of the life of Hezekiah, you need to understand that Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, was a very wicked and evil king. And King Ahaz did not follow in the ways of God. In fact, he practiced human sacrifice going as far as offering his own children as sacrifice, as recounted in chapter 28 of Second Chronicles. And therefore, because of his apostasy, the Lord's discipline was upon him and the kingdom of Judah. 
Judah lost wars to both Syria and Israel in the north. And the Lord sent the Edomites and the Philistines to constantly be a trouble to the side of King Ahaz. Assyria, the rising power of the ancient world to the east, whom Ahaz had sought for help, didn't really help them against their enemies. And so basically God's hand of blessing and God's hand of protection was removed from Judah because of the wickedness of King Ahaz. And that's exactly what chapter 28, verse 19 tells us. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. And the Bible minces no words. It was because of the leadership of King Ahaz that there was a moral decline of his generation in the kingdom of Judah. And it is in this climate of moral decay and apostasy that Hezekiah becomes king of Judah. And look what is said of him in chapter 29, verses 1 and 2. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. The Bible tells us that King Hezekiah walked in the ways of the Lord, unlike his father. Let me make a side note here. Your spirituality is not contingent upon that of your parents. If your parents are evil people and do not walk in the ways of God, that doesn't mean you have to follow in their footsteps. Vice versa. Just because your parents are spiritual people who faithfully follow the Lord, it doesn't guarantee that you, as their children, will also have a great relationship with the Lord. Because our faith walk is a personal walk. And just because someone grew up in the church, or just because someone went to a Christian school, or just because someone grew up in a Christian home, doesn't mean they will automatically have a great faith walk. One's relationship with Jesus Christ has to be cultivated, and it is personal. And so I want to encourage our parents to actively cultivate and develop a spiritual family atmosphere where your children will be able to develop their own personal faith walk with Jesus. And it often is through your example and through your modeling of your own walk with Jesus that they will catch the spiritual fervor to do the very same thing. Don't assume that just because you love Jesus, your children will love Jesus as well. You need to actively cultivate that in their lives. Now moving on, look at verse 3. What is the first act that Hezekiah does? In the first year of his reign, in the first month, Hezekiah opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. In the very first month, in the very first year of his reign, perhaps in his very first act, the Bible tells us he opened the temple, the temple of the Lord, which had very much been in disrepair because of years of neglect under his father's reign. Because his father worshipped the false gods of the region, therefore there was no use for the temple of God, and it was neglected, and it became under disrepair. In verse 4 to 8, this is what Hezekiah commanded be done. Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him have turned their face away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. They've also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering, as you see with your eyes." Hezekiah commanded the priests and the Levites to cleanse themselves, to sanctify themselves, and then to repair and consecrate the temple. 
And he gave them a bit of a history lesson. He reminded them that their forefathers, the generation before, had neglected the proper care of God's house. Note in verse 6, they had turned their backs on the Lord. And verse 6 seems to indicate that there is a natural correlation between the heart of a person and the action of a person. You see, the action of neglect is indicative of a heart that doesn't care about God. The generation before did not care about God or the things of God, and therefore their action was to neglect the things of God. And that's what verse 7 tells us. They literally closed the door of the temple. We have no use of this place. The Bible says they literally turned off the lights. They put out the lights. They no longer brought offerings to the Lord God, indicating through their actions that they did not care nor wanted a relationship with the one true God. And therefore, they fell into the pitfall of neglect. And that generation ended badly. How do we avoid the pitfall of neglect? What we're going to do this morning is we're going to reverse engineer, if you understand that term. We're going to see what caused their spiritual neglect by looking at the response of the people when the temple had been repaired and the worship of God was restored. What was the response of the people? And by the people's response, we will reverse engineer what led them to a pitfall of neglect. But before we do that, just look at very quickly at the heart of Hezekiah in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10. Now, it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My son, do not be negligent now. Do not neglect this. For the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, that you should minister to him and burn incense. The Bible is very clear. Hezekiah's heart was for the people of Judah to once again restore their relationship with God, the God of Israel, so that his hand of discipline would be removed and blessings would be restored. And so he admonished the priests and the Levites very clearly in verse 11, do not be negligent. Essentially put, climb out of the pitfall of neglect and do the job that God has asked. Well, they did do that. We don't have time, but in verses 15 to 19, and I hope you'll read these verses we have to skim over. In verses 15 to 19, we find out that the priests, in fact, do clean out the temple. They consecrate the place and prepare it for worship. When the cleanup work was done, the Bible tells us in verse 20, Then King Hezekiah rose early, gathered the rulers of the city, and went up to the house of the Lord. In verses 21 to 28, the Bible tells us there is a mass sacrifice to the Lord as prescribed in the Mosaic law. And what is most important is that the sin sacrifice, the sacrifice for the atonement of their sins was done. And when this was done, look at the response of the king and the people in verse 29 and 30. And when they had finished offering... The king and all who were present with him bowed and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the leaders commanded the Levites to sing praise to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and they bowed their heads and worshipped. In response to the atonement of their sin, to the sin sacrifice, the people who gathered Worship God. They showed forth a heart of humility. They fell prostrate before the Lord. They were on their faces to the ground. And from this action, we see that it was not out of a sense of obligation that they did this. It was a natural response to what they longed to do. The previous generation desired not to do this. But when they realized what God had done in their life, they responded by worshiping him. I want you to look at verse 30. And if you read verse 30, there was one word that jumped out at me. And the word that jumped out at me was the word gladness. They worshiped with gladness. Here's the truth. You will not neglect to do something when you enjoy it, right? 
It's interesting, when there is no joy or gladness in what you do, the first chance you don't have to do it, you will neglect doing it. It's like a young person who grows up in the church who are forced to go to Sunday school. They don't find joy or happiness in coming. So when they grow up, the first opportunity that they don't have to come to church, they will neglect doing it. The same goes with every aspect of the life we live, whether it's dieting or exercising, whether it's doing your homework. We neglect doing things when there is no enjoyment or gladness in the heart. That's why when we're young, we're forced to study, we're forced to do our homework. But at to some point in adulthood, it is up to you if you want to continue learning or not. And if you don't enjoy studying, learning new things, then you'll shut your mind down and you will neglect to learn more. And so the first warning sign, number one, that you are moving towards the pitfall of neglect, number one, is doing something without gladness or joy in one's heart. Doing something, and that something is encompassing of all spiritual things in your life. Doing something without gladness or joy in one's heart. That's why it's important when you come to the worship of God, whether it's corporately as a church or privately in your personal devotions, that in that intimate worship of God, that there is a gladness and joy of heart. Note, I'm not saying that we need to be entertained. If you want to be entertained, you will not find it in corporate and private worship. But when we come to worship, it is with an attitude of gladness that will allow us to continue to do it or else we will neglect it the first opportunity that we have. Truth be told, when many of us go on vacation, the first thing we stop doing when we go on vacation is the private worship of God. When we go on vacation, the first thing that drops out in our itinerary is the corporate worship of God. Why? Because when we go on vacation, it's all about fun, entertainment. And even though we have more time to do it, we choose not to do it because we really don't enjoy the corporate and private worship of God. And therefore, it is a warning to us that it may bring about the pitfall of neglect. Do you have an attitude of gladness and joy when you come to the worship of God? Do you find enjoyment coming here on a Sunday to experience corporate worship? Do you participate and enjoy singing the songs of praise? As you often see me, I often stand in the back of our four services. I'm observing, I'm watching. If I were to see the face and the countenance of many of us worshiping, it's rather telling. And it's very easy to see that many of us are not enjoying being here. We are not engaged. How do I know? We're not participating. There is no joy. And that's why a lot of people come late. Because they don't enjoy the singing. And so if you don't enjoy it, we can neglect it. But I'm glad at least 99% of you are here when I begin the sermon. At least you enjoy the sermon, I hope. But that which we enjoy, we will participate in. That we don't, we often skip out on. And yet, it is the entirety of a worship service, whether it's the reading of Scripture, whether it is the singing of songs, Praising God with our voices. It is the reading of God's word and the listening and hearing of God's word that encompasses the entire worship of God. Do you remember what the psalmist said in Psalm 122, verse 1? You know it well. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Can you echo the words of the psalmist? I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I wasn't in your homes this morning, but I know it probably looks something like this when your spouse or your parents woke you up and told you it's time to come to church. Do we have to go? We already went this month. Why do we have to go again? Why every week? I always church, church, church. Can we go next week when school has started and we get points for coming? 
Why do we have to come this week? I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Is that your attitude? Because your attitude will be an indicator of whether you will fall into the pitfall of neglect or not. Let that be a warning sign. And that in which you find gladness and joy, if you have it in your intimate walk with God, you will not neglect doing it. And yes, the worship of God is like all spiritual disciplines. There will be times when it goes up and down. There will be times when you're not motivated to read the word of God. But let those times be an exception rather than the regular practice. Verse 31. Then Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thanks offering into the house of the Lord. So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offerings, and as many as were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. The prior set of offerings and sacrifices was for the cleansing and the consecration of the nation and the temple. After all that, they worshipped. And in verse 31, Hezekiah now gives each of those who had assembled there the opportunity to make a thanksgiving offering. And this thanksgiving offering is not obligatory. It is not forced, but it is voluntary. Look at verse 31 and circle the word willing heart. Solomon, excuse me, Hezekiah said, if you have a willing heart and you would like to express your love for God in a thankful manner, you have an opportunity to come and offer more sacrifices. What was the response of the people? They'd already offered the sin sacrifice. In verse 32 to 35, the Bible tells us, the people responded by offering so much that there were not enough priests who could prepare the sacrifices that they had to go recruit the larger tribe of Levi to help assist them. Imagine that. They offered so much that they could not handle all the offering. Isn't that amazing? The response of a people that had a willing heart. Verse 36. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people since the events took place, note this, so suddenly. This was not manipulated. The Bible tells us this was spontaneous. Out of the outflowing and overflow of their thankfulness, the people gave. And by reverse engineering, we can perhaps see what the previous generation had missed. You see, here's the second warning, number two. When you do something out of a sense of obligation without a willing heart, you will fall into the pitfall of neglect. Perhaps the previous generation did what they needed to do out of a sense of obligation and not out of a willing heart. When you do something out of a sense of obligation, when you are no longer obliged to do it, then you will neglect its practice. But if you have a willing heart, and I hope you have one in your walk with God, that what you give to God in your time and in your resources does not come because you are obliged to do it, but comes out of the outflowing of your joy and gladness. So many Christians are stagnant in their spirituality because they live their lives out of a sense of obligation to Jesus Christ. And yes, in many ways there is an obligation because of what Jesus Christ did for us when he died on the cross. But unfortunately for many people, once they feel that they have made it up to Jesus for dying for their sins, they don't go any further. If you have ever had the notion or the thought that says, you know what, I've already done my part. I'm already doing this or that. I'm better than most Christians. Then you are living out your Christian life out of a sense of obligation. And it will stymie and stagnate your spirituality. 
after years of not being able to worship God, this generation in Hezekiah's time craved the opportunity to sacrifice, to give to God. And they overwhelmingly did so when given the opportunity. Do you fight to have the opportunity to serve God? I hope you do. Are you fighting and seeing that when an opportunity opens up for you to serve God, that you see it as a privilege, not as a burden? Yes, there must be balance in the Christian life, but it is an attitude that desires to have the privilege of serving God. When the opportunity to sacrifice to God your time and resources in how you live your life, is it with a sense of obligation or is it with a willing heart? You know, there's a big difference and it's very telling. On this trip to Europe, our family was hosted by many different people. When you are hosted by someone, you know if your hosts are forced to do it, obliged to do it, or whether they host you out of a willing, generous heart. And we were overwhelmed with the hospitality of the believers who took care of us. Two people come to mind, two young men. Uh, They hosted us when we went to Belgium. Cindy and I thought, because of the way they hosted us and their spiritual maturity, that they were at least in their late 20s or their early 30s. We were surprised to find out when we asked them how old they were, that they were only 20 years old. Imagine that, two 20-year-olds hosting the guest speaker, taking us around, making conversation with us, showing us a great time. For them, the opportunity to host the guest speaker was a ministry, and boy, did they do a great job. I've never had this happen before. But when they met us, they handed me a piece of paper. And they said to us, here is your itinerary for your trip to Belgium. To the hour, everything had been planned. Well, not only that, in each hour, we had a choice of three activities that we could have done. They had done the research to see things that we may be interested in. And they even wrote a small description with pictures so that we could choose. This would be age-appropriate for your kids. They may not enjoy this. You would enjoy this. I thought we were VIPs. This was amazing. I wonder how many of you have had to host people from abroad, whether you know, it's from Asia or from the U.S. or Canada. Uh, and you didn't want to host them, but because they're family or relative, you were obliged to do so, or your parents made you. Any of you ever given them an itinerary of the options you can do here in Manila? I venture to guess most of you, if you're obliged to host your relatives, will tell them, when I have time, I'll take you out to eat. When I find time, okay, I'll, 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 I'll think of a place for us to do, uh, I'll think of a place for us to go. It's different. It's different when you're obliged to do something or when you're willing. Uh, These young men went one step further. I thought to document our trip in Belgium, I just hand them my camera, camera phone, and they'll take pictures of our family. No, they said, Pastor, don't worry. We brought equipment to document your family trip for you. We will take pictures and take videos. And at the end of your trip to Belgium, we'll send you the files. And that's exactly what they did. So if you see the pictures on Facebook, especially the ones in Belgium, not my pictures. Someone took them for us. Have you ever been on a trip to be hosted where you have a personal videographer and photographer that followed you around? It was great. Now listen carefully. These are young men whose family have the means to just hire a tour guide for us. But as their pastor told me, They jumped at the chance to serve us. And they did so with a willing heart, with the way they expressed themselves. It makes a difference. It makes a difference if you are obliged to do it or you do it with a willing heart. So also your spiritual life. The Lord knows. If you dare to ask him the question, to search my heart, he knows. He knows if you are going through the Christian life, living out a life for him out of only obligation 
or out of a willing heart. It makes a difference. May that be a warning to us, lest we fall into the pitfall of neglect. Chapter 30, verse 1. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. Jump down to verse 5. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. In the preparation for his first Passover of his reign, which hadn't happened in a long time, Hezekiah sent out letters to the tribes up in the north to invite them to come south to Jerusalem and join in the observation of the important feast of Passover. Now, a bit of background for to help you understand this. At this time, the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom in 722 BC, exiled many of the ten tribes. But there were many from those ten tribes that still remained, and it was to these people that Hezekiah invited. Historically, the northern ten tribes did not have a great relationship with the southern two tribes. In fact, soon after the nation split with the death of Solomon, the north built places of worship that was not prescribed in the scriptures and by God. But the northern kings set up these places of worship because they didn't want their people to go down south to observe the feast, thinking that somehow they would lose control of their people. In places like Dan, they set up a place for worship, but unfortunately to a false god. Likewise, the southern kingdom of Judah didn't do a great job of welcoming, historically, their northern relatives to come and take part in this prescribed mosaic festival which should have transcended their disagreement because they were all Israelites. But now, Hezekiah wanted to invite them. And so what does he do? Verse 6. Then the runners went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the command of the king. Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Syria. Assyria. Messengers and runners were sent throughout the north to invite those who were not yet exiled to be part of the Passover celebration. And if you have time to read the message of the runners, it's an invitation for them not only to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem, but also to return to a gracious and merciful God. Look at verse 9. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who led them captive so that they may come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. What is the response? Verse 10. So the runners passed from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but they laughed at them and mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. These messengers were laughed at, but it didn't deter the desire of Hezekiah to do the right thing. And there were some who responded from the north who came to Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. Also, the hand of God was on Judah. Note this. To give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders At the word of the Lord. God gave the people of Judah a unity of heart, but more importantly, the purpose to celebrate Passover together as a nation. And what you have here is a contrasting view. On one side, you have the nation to the north, Israel, who fell spiritually because they neglected the proper worship of God as prescribed by him In the Mosaic Law. God said you must worship in Jerusalem. These feasts. But they said otherwise. We'll do whatever we want. We want a place closer to us. In contrast to the nation of Judah. 
who at least in this time thrived spiritually because the Bible tells us in verse 12, they were united in their purpose to obey God. God gave them the singleness of heart, note this, to obey the word of the Lord. My friends, if you are not united in your purpose to obey God at all costs, even out of your inconvenience, then you will begin to neglect God and you will begin to neglect to do what is right. And that is the third warning to avoid the pitfall of neglect. The previous generations had neglected to obey God and follow his prescribed way of doing things. And therefore, it was a warning when there is no united purpose to obey God. There is no unanimity. There is no united purpose. One purpose, you can call it conviction if you want. No conviction to obey God. It's easy to neglect God. It's easy to disregard what he has said when you are not purposed to obey him. But if you are purposed of heart, Bible calls it the singleness of heart. If you are purposed of heart to follow God in all that you do to obey him, then you will not deviate. The heart may want to skip church. The heart may want to skip the reading of God's word. The heart may want to not pray. The heart may want to slip in its character. A little white lie. It's okay. It's okay if I marry a non-believer. It's okay. The heart may want those things, but conviction will hold if there's singleness of purpose to obey God. We neglect what we do not purpose to do. If something is not intentional, then it is negotiable. And if something is negotiable, then it is neglected. It's almost like many of you who keep to a schedule, right? Once it goes on your calendar, once it's scheduled, you either have to cross it off or you have to check it off, but you just got to do it. You have purpose to do it. You put it on your list of things to do. Well, how come on your list of things to do on your schedule is not in there the spiritual things of life? Because it is not there intentionally, then... It is neglected. It's as easy as that. If you have not purpose to do it on your to-do list, then it is easily neglected. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it next week. I'll do it a month from now. I'll do it a year. I won't do it at all. That's how it goes. May that serve as a warning to us. In verses 13 to 25, they celebrated Passover in the subsequent Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And it was a great celebration. Go back and read verses 13 and 25 when you get home. There was great gladness. There was praising. There was singing. They so enjoyed the worship of God, the Bible tells us, they extended the celebration for seven more days. Wow! If I were to ask you, do you enjoy the worship service today? I'm sure most of you would raise your hand, at least I hope so. And if I were to take a cue from that and say, oh, I'm glad you enjoyed so much, I'm going to extend the service for another hour. I think most of you would leave. We enjoy it, but we don't enjoy it that much. Not for these people. There was great gladness, and they extended by another seven days. So moved was King Hezekiah that the Bible tells us he offers even more sacrifice. But just look at the commentary of the chronicler in verse 26. This is how he sees it. So there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. That means... The 200 years that spanned between Solomon and Hezekiah, there had not been this type of spiritual revival and rejoicing. Isn't that amazing? It's kind of a personal desire and prayer of mine that as we begin our 50th year in a few months, that those of us in this generation 
celebrating our church's 50th year. And those who look from the outside in will say, nothing like this has ever happened before in the 50-year history of the church. Not to slight the previous generation. But every year we exist as a body of Christ. We need to be leveling up. We need to improve ourselves spiritually. That it can be written historically of our church. In that 50th year of Grace Christian Church, we've seen nothing like it and continues on. But more than that, look what the people did when they got back home. Verse 1 of chapter 31. Now, when all this was finished, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pillars in pieces, cut down the wooden images, and threw down the high places and the altars from all Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possession. The people finally did what the previous generation did not do. They went throughout the entire land. This is something they should have done at the very beginning, but they finally did it. They went through all the land and they tore down all the sacred places and the high places where they worshiped the false god of the Canaanites. Gods like Baal and Asherah. There were a lot of good kings before Hezekiah. They tried to enact the spiritual revival. But never in the history of Judah up to that point had they removed all of the high places of worship to a foreign god. For example, even the reign of good king Jehoshaphat, whom we studied, Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 33, tells us that even Jehoshaphat wasn't able to get the people to help him take down the idols from the high places because, quoting, the people had not directed their hearts to the God of their fathers. What's the difference? What's the difference between Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah? It was not in Hezekiah's time, the people initiated this. The people were so internally transformed and changed with a spiritual revival that they made the effort to do what was right. Not only not do what was wrong, they did consciously what was right. You see, to avoid, number four, the pitfall of neglect, you must consciously do what is right. Or as a warning, consciously do not do what is wrong. You see, we often fall into the pitfall of neglect because we simply don't do what is wrong. Now you say, what's wrong with that, Pastor? We should all not be doing wrong. What are you trying to say? Perhaps an example would be more clear to help explain what I'm trying to say. I think many of us do not curse. We don't use the Lord's name in vain. And we'd pat ourselves on the back. We do not curse. We do not curse. We're doing the right thing. We don't curse. We're not doing anything wrong. But I wonder how many of us would take it to the next level where we say, because I do not take the Lord's name in vain, I don't want anyone that I talk with to also do the same thing. How many of us have the audacity to tell other men and women who we talk to, I'm so sorry, you should not use that language when you're around me. And if you continue to use that language around me, then I cannot talk to you. That's doing something that is right. But we're content with simply not doing what is wrong. Does that make sense? It's like these people. For generations in the past, they may have thought to themselves, as long as, do not, as long as I do not worship in the high places, that's good enough. Let them be there. I don't go up there. But these people finally got it right. They said, no. Not only do I not worship in the high places, these foreign gods, I will do what is right by taking it down. It's another step. It's another step. It's often a step we're not willing to make. And because we're not willing to make that step, we also fall into the pitfall of neglect because all we're doing in the Christian life is avoiding what is wrong. And so we're all happy that we're not sinning. 
But we're not transforming the community around us. We're not actively doing what is right. It's like on social media. We're happy and content that we have not posted anything offensive. But when we see a friend or fellow brother or fellow sister who posts something that is offensive, we all keep silent. How many of you would dare to write them a private message and say, I'm so sorry, but I saw something that was inappropriate that I think you need to remove. And if you're not going to remove these inappropriate things, then I'm going to block you or I'm going to unfriend you. Oh, we wouldn't do that. And that's the problem. We're so concerned. We're so concerned with simply not doing wrong that we're not consciously, proactively doing what is right. And there's a difference there. A lot of Christians fall into the pitfall of neglect because we're passive. We passively live out our Christian life simply not doing wrong instead of actively living our lives doing what is right. There's a difference there. And it is this generation in Hezekiah's time that finally got their act together and finally proactively took down every single high place where they were sacrificing to a false god. The rest of chapter 31 is Hezekiah's reforms. We don't have time to study it, but I hope you'll go back and read it. It's pretty self-explanatory. But here in his reforms, he sets up systems and processes that keep the people accountable. He makes sure that they will no longer neglect doing what is right, strengthening the system that God had already set in place. Didn't allow for the slippage of character or the inattention to sin. Because we need to understand, my friends, that Satan is wise. He may not push us to reject God, but he's trying as hard as he can to keep us passive. He whispers to us, what's the big deal? Don't make such a big issue out of it. Everyone's doing it. You're old enough to decide for yourself. Just sit back. Don't create waves. And so we passively live out our lives to the point we neglect doing what is right. It took 200 years, perhaps, for them to finally remove what, should have been, what they should have done on day one. Where did that come out of? It came out of their desire to change. This chapter concludes in verse 20 and 21. It reads this. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment, to seek his God, note this, he did it with all his heart, so he prospered. The Bible tells us Hezekiah turned around a generation that before him had neglected God. And in a generation, he got them to worship God because he led by example and he did it with all of his heart. And the people saw. Hezekiah was committed to the task of spiritual reform. You know, we often talk about spiritual revival, spiritual revival. To get spiritual revival, you must have spiritual reform. People are asking me all the time, Pastor, I want to change, I want to change. Then, then change. I want to grow deeper in my walk with God. I want to experience the intimate fellowship and the joy that comes with it. I said, wonderful. How do I do it? It begins with reform. It begins with the changing of the way you and I live it begins with doing what is right. It requires the passive actions of all of us to move towards an active participation to bring about spiritual reform. 
that leads to spiritual revival. That scares me the most. What scares me the most is the passivity of the Christian. The more laid back we are in our faith, the more we simply go with the flow, the more that nothing happens in our life, we're simply but playing out the Christian life. And that's all we're doing. We are neglecting as a byproduct what it means to have an intimate walk with God. We need men and women in our body of Christ, in our church, to move from passivity to action. Avoid the pitfall of neglect, and you and I will finish well. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It pricks my heart also, because there are times I simply live with the notion that as long as I'm not doing wrong, I've done my part. But then I'll be like all the previous generations before who simply accepted mediocrity and didn't do what we fully need to do. Challenge this generation like the generation of Hezekiah where men and women of our body will take the initiative to do what is right with gladness in their hearts, with willingness in their soul to do what needs to be done, to bring about the personal reforms that need to happen, which will lead to the revival we all want to see. So begin that in our hearts today, if it has not already begun, so that we can avoid the pitfall of neglect. And we as a church will be united with one purpose, to obey the word of God in this dark generation. And with our lives, you will assess then that it will have been lived well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.